From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The leading risk factor for developing Alzheimer's disease is age, and our baby boomer population is aging at rates never seen before in this country. The number of people with Alzheimer's disease is expected to triple and reach 14 million by the year 2015. On today's program, we'll learn more about the hopes for earlier diagnosis and better treatment options from a Mayo Clinic expert. We now know who's likely to be developing the disease, and the idea now is the earlier we intervene, the more likely we will be able to prevent subsequent cognitive decline. Also on the program, the dangers of using herbal Viagra. And a cancer treatment using heated chemotherapy. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Alzheimer's disease. It's been in the news recently with the death of country music legend Glenn Campbell. Now, Campbell shared his bat- battle with the disease fairly publicly with a documentary film that included footage of his treatment at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Alzheimer's, unfortunately, is a progressive disease. It gets worse over time, and it affects an estimated 5.5 million people in this country. In Alzheimer's disease, the brain cells degenerate and die, causing a steady decline in memory and mental function. At first, someone with Alzheimer's disease may notice mild confusion and difficulty remembering. Eventually, people with the disease may forget important people in their lives and undergo even dramatic personality changes. Oh, you never would never forget me, would you, Tracy? Never. <laughs> you know, it's a disease that all of us would like to avoid. Here to discuss Alzheimer's disease is Mayo Clinic neurologist and the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Peterson. Always good to have you All on. All right. Thanks very much, Tom and Tracy. We always appreciate an update on the disease called Alzheimer's. And recently, the death of Glenn Campbell, he was a patient, but he was really more than that to you, wasn't he? He, he really was. I mean, he was a wonderful person, and you can see why people liked him so much over the course of his career. He was genuinely friendly, honest, straightforward, and he was he was fun to be with, even far into the disease. And what Ronald Reagan started by uh, opening the door for people to learn more about Alzheimer's disease, I think um, you could argue that Glenn Campbell has continued that work quite well. Absolutely, even more so in some respects insofar as not only did he announce the presence of the disease for himself, but then he allowed the filmmakers to chronicle the next 18 months of his life, not knowing what was going to happen as the disease progressed. Uh, Alzheimer's does shorten your lifespan? It does. In general, uh, it's very variable how long a person will live after a diagnosis, but it generally does shorten the life by a few years. And people with Alzheimer's, what ultimately happens? Why do they die? Usually it's a medical complication of the disease rather than the disease itself, meaning that later on in the course of the disease, people may develop difficulty swallowing. That may lead to pneumonia, aspiration. Blood infections, sometimes they may get uh, urinary tract infections that go undetected, get into the blood. And you, so usually it's a medical complication. 
You know, and we talk about Alzheimer's, and everybody knows the term. Everybody knows someone who has the disease. But it is, in fact, a form of dementia. Can you explain the relationship between the two? Sure. Dementia refers to the fact that I'm not remembering, not thinking as well as I formerly did, and it's affecting my daily function. So that's dementia. But dementia could be caused by a variety of conditions, Alzheimer's disease, of course, being the most common especially in aging. But it could also be caused by multiple strokes, brain tumors, medical problems, medication side effects. A variety of things could cause dementia. But again, if you get somebody, say, in their 70s or 80s with a gradual progression of forgetfulness uh, impacting their daily activities, most likely that dementia is due to Alzheimer's disease. Is there a time or an age when people are most likely to start recognizing some dementia or Alzheimer's-type symptoms? Well, the disease is really one of aging. So, the say, the modal or the, the average age of a person with Alzheimer's disease is probably late 70s, early 80s. But the onset, we think now, begins maybe years, if not decades, earlier. The symptoms. We're, we're all concerned about forgetfulness as we get older, and our memory is not as good as it used to be. And how do you know what's normal part of aging? I mean, I, I remember you saying years and years and years ago that really cognitive decline or mental decline really wasn't a part of normal aging, but we don't believe that anymore, right? I no, mean, no, that's true. I mean, one of the studies that we're doing here at Mayo called the Mayo Clinic Study of Aging is looking at this community as they age normally. And we're seeing cognitive changes over time, not due to Alzheimer's disease, but as a part of aging. Um, is Alzheimer's really uh, increasing, or is it the fact that we're living longer? We're living too long. Well, the biggest factor is age. That is, the society is living longer than it did formerly. So that's the major risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. So it really, the fact that we're making progress in cancer, we're making progress in heart disease, stroke, actually means that people are living longer and more susceptible to the effects of Alzheimer's disease. So whereas before they might have died of a heart attack in their late 60s, now they're all around long enough to develop Alzheimer's disease. Exactly. Um, is... Is there a, a way to determine if you are at risk for developing Alzheimer's disease other than knowing that somebody in your family had it? Well, there are some genetic characteristics, although uh, most of the disease is what's called sporadic, not due to genetic uh, predisposition. But nevertheless, there are what are called ge genetic susceptibility factors. So certain changes in some genes that are quite normal, but when they occur in certain frequencies, actually predispose a person to developing the disease. It, can you figure that out if you have your genome checked? Uh, yes and no. Uh, there are essentially two forms of Alzheimer's disease is truly genetic, which is quite rare. Maybe 1% of all Alzheimer's disease is due to what are called deterministic genes, meaning that if you have this gene, the abnormality in this gene, you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, and you usually get it earlier in life, so in your 40s or your 50s. Very dramatic, and in these families, 50% of people throughout the generations have the disease, so it's quite dramatic. But again, that's a rare form. The vast majority of people will have Alzheimer's disease as a function of aging and maybe some of these susceptibility genes. So there's one in particular called apolipoprotein E. Now, this is a normal protein. We all have it. It serves as a transport function for us. 
transports cholesterol and other fats and lipids around the body. It comes in three varieties, so-called E2, E3, and E4. We inherit one type from mom, one type from dad. So we get all combinations, 2, 3, 3, 3, 3, 4, 2, 4, etc. Turns out that if you inherit the 4 variety, your risk is increased over time. Again, with age, but it is increased by maybe three or four-fold over the general population. Now, if you're unfortunate enough to inherit the four variety from mom and dad, so you're a 4-4, then your risk goes up 10 to 14 times over the general population. So these are just risk factors, but they're not deterministic. But having your genome checked isn't going to tell you that. You can do it. It might, like 23andMe, okay? They will, in fact, give you a genetic profile, and they will look at chromosome 19, Apple lipoprotein E, are you a 2, 3, or 4, or combinations, and they'll tell you this has a certain statistical predisposition for the disease, but it doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. Mm-hmm. All right, so you can learn a little bit, but not what right. you really want to know. Exactly. All right, uh, to this point in time, is there any effective treatment for someone with Alzheimer's disease? Well, when we talk about treatments, you can talk about pharmacologic or drug treatments, and you can talk about lifestyle interventions. On the pharmacology side, we have a few drugs on the market that are useful for treating the symptoms, may help stabilize people for a period of time, but they do not affect the underlying disease process. So the disease continues to progress as if you weren't treated with those medications. Nevertheless, we use them because the symptom improvement can be important. On the lifestyle side, we're talking about issues like physical activity, maybe a heart-healthy diet, cognitive activity, staying socially connected in your networks. Those factors have been shown to be somewhat protective or helpful in cognitive aging. I don't think they really prevent Alzheimer's disease ultimately, but still, if these factors can modify when you become symptomatic, that's a big deal. All right. We're talking about dementia and Alzheimer's disease with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Ronald Peterson. Time for a short break. And when we come back, so we've got some questions that we want to answer. Yes, things like what can be done? Can you slow the process of dem- dementia or Alzheimer's? We'll look into the future. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with neurologist and the director of the Mayo Clinic Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, Dr. Ronald Peterson. We've talked a little bit in general about the disease. We've talked about the unfortunate death of Glenn Campbell, also a patient of Dr. Peterson's, President Ronald Reagan. So now we want to ask you a, a couple of things. What we really know about Alzheimer's disease to date and what the future holds and when we might someday have an effective treatment for this disease. And the first thing I want to ask you about is the report that came out this summer from the National Academies of Sciences, and it was called Preventive, Co- Preventing Cognitive Decline and Dementia a Way Forward. And what did you think the highlights of that report were? I think there were three findings that came out of that. One is that there may be an avenue for cognitive training, that is, things you can do with your mind to stay intellectually active and perhaps even develop some techniques for remembering processing that may be beneficial in the long run. The second factor was elevated blood pressure, particularly elevated blood pressure in midlife, treating it can not only prevent heart disease and stroke, but may actually have an impact on reducing the likelihood of cognitive impairment as you age. And the third factor was physical exercise, aerobic exercise. 
And in fact, if you get out there, brisk walking, jogging, swimming, things of that nature, again, may postpone cognitive decline in aging. So uh, expand a little bit on the uh, the cognitive training. What what exactly do you mean by that? Crossword puzzles? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it could be. The, the, the difficulty in this area is that it's a major industry out there, and there are a zillion brain games out there that have not been validated. So the committee had to walk a tightrope there to say what the literature indicated without necessarily endorsing some of these products because we just don't know. So there was one study called the ACTIVE study that the committee looked at quite carefully. And this was a study done over 10 years ago where people were actually given cognitive training, usually in groups, mnemonic techniques. How do you remember a list of this or a list of that? There were techniques with regard to problem solving and techniques for improving your processing speed, doing multitasking more effectively. Those people were trained. They were tested two, five, and ten years later. And in fact, particularly at two years, maybe five, less so at ten, there was evidence that that training actually persisted throughout the years and made those people more efficient and less likely to experience cognitive decline later. Anything else that could help slow the progression of dementia? We really don't know for sure. We think that these other factors, in fact, again, a heart-healthy diet is a good idea. And clearly managing your vascular risk factors, so blood pressure being the main one. But I think physical exercise, too. I think patients often ask me, I said, you know, if you could do one thing, doctor, what would you tell me to do? And I'd say get out there and walk, run, swim, do something of that nature. Well, but there is some relationship between sleep and Alzheimer's, isn't there? Absolutely. At the international meeting last month in London, There were several studies reporting that, in fact, people with sleep disorders may have an increased tendency to develop cognitive impairment later in life. Now, you can actually get into a biologic explanation as to how that may relate to Alzheimer's disease because it turns out that when people are sleeping at night and, in fact, when they get down to the deeper stages of sleep, this amyloid protein, one of the culprits that causes the disease, actually gets cleared from the brain. And to the extent you do not get into those deep stages of sleep, that may impair one's abilities of the brain to clear that protein. So it's theoretical, but it could happen. Well, this, uh, nap may not be so That's bad. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the right track anyway. So, so where are we? Where are you in your research? What do you expect to happen over the next few years? I mean, this is basically a health care crisis for this country. It is. Um, and, and, and so what do you think is going to happen? Well, I, I think we're, we're steadily trying to develop these new therapies. And I think what's happened in recent years is that our ability to detect the disease in life in people, maybe even when they're cognitively normal, has enhanced our ability to develop therapies. So one of the reasons why the therapies have failed thus far is maybe they're being introduced too late in the process. So we're asking people to already be memory impaired, maybe even have mild dementia, before we start these medications that are meant to alter these underlying proteins in the brain. It's like, I'm going to give you a statin, but I'm going to wait till you have your heart attack. Well, no, no, no. You should lower your cholesterol 5, 10, 20 years earlier to prevent the heart attack. So that strategy has now filtered into our field such that with this ability to look inside the brain, to look for these proteins through our biomarkers, our imaging tests, our biofluid tests, 
we now know who's likely to be developing the disease, develop symptoms down the road. And the idea now is the earlier we intervene, the more likely we will be able to prevent subsequent cognitive decline. So that's not a blood test you use to figure out whether or not someone has dementia. It's an imaging test. And exactly what do you mean by that? So an imaging test can be done with MRI scans or PET scans. PET scans pick up uh, radioactivity. So, for example, if we're trying to detect one of the amyloid proteins or the tau proteins, the two culprits that cause Alzheimer's disease, in a person, we would give an injection of a small amount of radioactive substance that would circulate in the blood, go into the brain, and if you had amyloid plaques in the brain, it would attach to that plaque and then give off a signal, similarly with the tau protein in the brain. So since these are the two defining characteristics of Alzheimer's disease, we can now label somebody's brain as to whether they, these proteins are present. So you think that uh, by detecting these abnormal proteins earlier on, then give the medications that we have that don't have, haven't been all that effective, that maybe they will be more effective. Exactly, exactly. I think that the idea is prevention now rather than treatment after the symptoms have begun. And, and, and what else? Do you think that there will ultimately be a medication for people who have more advanced disease? Do you yes. think you can ever reverse the process? That may be a tall order, but I think we could still uh, halt the process, stop the progression, and maybe improve the symptoms. So while we're trying to prevent the disease, we're also working on drugs that will help with the symptomatic stage of the disease. Reversing it might be a tall order. Not that people aren't trying, but that might be a tall order. One of the strategies, treatment strategies, is to give an antibody into the blood that actually goes into the brain, grabs onto that amyloid, and removes it from the brain. And there's a trial underway right now showing that that may, in fact, be effective. So that is a strategy. Now, whether that's going to improve symptoms, again, is, is another uh, stretch. How do you know if that's working, if you have to wait until the person is deceased to check their brain? How do you know if that's working? Tracy, actually, we don't have to wait now because of these biomarkers, these imaging scans, like I was mentioning with this study. In this particular study, they looked at people who had positive amyloid scans, PET Mm -hmm. scans, before treatment, gave them the treatment for 12 months, then scanned them again, and there was less amyloid in the brain after the treatment than there was at the start. Well, how is the mood in in London? This was an international Alzheimer's uh, meeting. Were people fairly upbeat that you're making some progress in our fight against Alzheimer's, or was it a fairly somber mood at the meeting? Well, there weren't any home runs. You didn't see any headlines out there that a drug has been found. But in fact, I think the mood is upbeat because we're learning so much about the underlying biology of the disease that these strategies that we've been discussing, I think, are going to be effective. All right. Well, that's good to know because there's five and a half million people who are depending on people like you. Dr. Ronald Peterson, neurologist and the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the dangers of herbal Viagra. And later on in the program, we'll learn about a unique procedure to treat cancers that have spread to the abdominal cavity. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Before the start of the school year, many kids get physical exams. Dr. Alva Roche-Green, a family medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, says yearly visits to your health care provider help make sure your child is healthy and ready to learn. You want to check their hearing, their vision, their height and weight to make sure they're growing appropriately, and their development to make sure that your child's development is appropriate for their age. If your provider notices any developmental delays, you can intervene early. You catch them early, you can actually make a big impact on your child's ability to learn and grow by having them get the appropriate services. Other benefits of back-to-school exams include updating vaccinations. Before kids enter kindergarten and first grade, there's a specific set of vaccines that are required by most states. And usually before kids enter seventh grade, there's another set of vaccines. Exams are also a great time for parents to ask any questions they may have about their child's health. Back-to-school physicals are key to making sure your child is ready for the new school year. And in other news, heartburn is a burning pain in your chest just behind your breastbone. The pain's often worse when lying down or bending over, and it's caused by stomach acid backing up into the esophagus. Occasional heartburn is common and no cause for alarm. Most people can manage the discomfort of heartburn with lifestyle changes and over-the-counter medications. If you suffer from heartburn, try these tips to ease your discomfort. Maintain a healthy weight. Excess pounds. Put pressure on your abdomen, pushing up your stomach and causing acid to back up into your esophagus. Avoid tight-fitting clothing, which puts pressure on your abdomen and the lower esophageal sphincter. Avoid foods that trigger your heartburn. Avoid lying down after a meal. Wait at least three hours. Avoid late meals. Elevate the head of your bed if you regularly experience heartburn at night or while you're trying to sleep. If that's not possible, insert a wedge between your mattress and box springs to elevate your body from the waist up. Raising your head with additional pillows usually isn't effective. And avoid smoking. Smoking decreases the lower esophageal sphincter's ability to function properly. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, since the 1990s, we've become increasingly aware that erectile dysfunction is a pretty common problem. How common, you might ask? Well, the Massachusetts Male Aging Study, which was a pretty good study, hmm. says that about 50% of men have it. And it gets more common as you get older. For example, at age 40, about 40% of men have erectile dysfunction, but the rate increases to nearly 70% in men who are 70 years of age. Now, for most men who have trouble keeping an erection, oral medications like Viagra, everybody's heard of Viagra, <laughs> they seem to work pretty well with not too many side effects. But, and, you know, there's some good news. Yeah. Uh, if I'm, I think I'm correct, Viagra comes off patent this year. Oh. And so you'll be able to get generic Viagra. <laughs> and but, then what? A warning, though. Consumers should be wary of any product that came, claims to be a natural form of Viagra. Herbal supplements aren't held to the same standards as prescription and over-the-counter medications. So it can be difficult to know which ones are safe and effective. Or effective, for that matter. <laughs> Here to discuss the dangers of herbal Viagra is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Welcome to the program. We're happy to have you here, Dr. Trost. Thanks for having me. Dr. Trost, good to have you. So uh, Viagra and, and its cousins, they've become a huge advance, or are a huge advance in the treatment of ED, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no question. The uh, Prior to the late 1990s when these were introduced, there weren't a lot of good options out there. You could do injections or you could use vacuum devices or things like that. 
But when the pills came out, they offered many advantages over other therapies. Uh, it's something that happens spontaneously. It enhances both the rigidity as well as the duration of the erection. So it was a dramatic change in, in how medicine was treated in this regard. Do you know the story about how the Viagra was came about? Yeah, tell yeah. our listeners. That's sure, just too yeah. good a story. Well, and during the original trials, they were looking for a pulmonary hypertension medicine. So they were looking for something specifically for... High blood uh, pressure in the lungs. Exactly, yep. And... Uh, uh, during the trials, they noticed that, well, it works okay for the lungs, but the men were reporting on the adverse event profile, so all the side effects of it, they were saying, you know, it didn't really help with the lungs, but boy, let me tell you what it did, you know, fix. Oh, and, well, and this. Mice. Yeah, <laughs> and they were they were trying, they thought it was a, an, a decent antihypertensive, and they were giving it to mice. This is probably even before your time, mm-hmm. and the mice all had erections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's no, and the company Viagra. quickly yeah. realized that we're going to do far so better. The high blood yeah, exactly. And is is Doctor Shives right that it's about ready to come off of patent? Yeah, in fact, it went off of patent for the pulmonary hypertension medicine even last year. So you can get it generic now. At a, uh, they just have to write the medicine at a specific dose. So they write for the generic sildenafil 20 milligrams, and then you can get it off patent now. But next year, several drugs come off patent, including Cialis and others. So, how do they work? How does Viagra and Cialis work? Yeah, they're different than other therapies in that they essentially enhance your your body's natural response. So your body naturally is trying to break down erections so you don't have an erection all the time. And this medicine blocks the enzyme that breaks down the erections. So uh, you normally will get a stimulus and it causes the medicines that result in an erection. And this breaks down the one that will break down the erection and hence it lasts longer and, and you get a, a more rigid erection than you would otherwise. Well, actually, I that's so interesting. I thought it just improved the blood flow so you could get an erection mm-hmm. and that's why it had the potential side effects of, of low blood pressure or, or no yeah no it's a good question and it's a common thing that we hear uh, even in the commercials for a while they said this is a blood flow problem yeah. and that was our belief for about 10 years uh, but more recent studies have shown that it's not a blood flow issue so much as a blood trapping issue so the blood goes in but it doesn't stay in and so usually you'll still get good arterial flow going in but what happens is the smooth muscle that normally has to relax can't. And so just like a parachute, if you pull the ripcord and the strings don't release all the way, the parachute doesn't open up. And same with erections. If if the uh, penis can't relax all the way or the smooth muscle doesn't relax, the blood goes in and it just leaks right back out. So that's well, why leakage problem. the commercial leakage blood flow problem. But that's why the commercial says if the erection lasts more than four hours... Consult your doctor. Yeah, is that a is that a real danger? No. Okay. Uh, so that has n- that just never ever ever happens. And we had a meeting recently where uh, there was a combined 150 years experience administering these drugs, as far as among all the providers who were there, and and they said, has anyone here ever seen that happen? And not a single person wow. uh, had seen a case of it. So we do see that with other medicines, but with the pills, so Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, Stendra, we don't see it. What, okay. what do you mean with other medicines, like injection type medicines? So oh. there are certain ones that can overpower your body. Body's natural response, uh, and in those ones you can get you know something that lasts too long, but with the uh, pills it just never happens. All right, so let's talk about then the reason you're here. Herbal Viagra is there such a thing? There's definitely such a, a thing. In fact, it's a huge, huge market out there. Uh, now, uh, but the bigger question is: Is it safe? And is for it sure. something you know you should uh, recommend or, or prescribe for it? And I think there's such a big desire for it uh, because of uh, three things, either safety, stigma, uh, or assumptions. And I think people just assume that herbal things are safer than uh, other products that are synthesized. 
Um, I think that uh, the uh, stigma side of it, the, with an herbal, you can just go to the store and pick it up, whereas with uh, erectile dysfunction, you have to go see a physician and get a prescription for Viagra. Hmm. And then assumptions, people just assume that the government's going to take care of them and going to prevent a medicine from being on the counter or over the counter that would be dangerous. Which isn't true. Which is not true, yep. Uh, the, and I forget the exact name of it, but the DSE, no, I do have it here, DSHEA Act, uh, basically said that the FDA has no role for proving the safety or efficacy of these types of therapies. And essentially, um, the FDA has to prove that it's unsafe before it comes off the market. So it's the opposite of other drugs uh, for it. Uh, does herbal Viagra work? I mean, and why would you even think about it? Uh, well, uh, you know, because Viagra and, and its cousins work so well, but the reason you'd think about it is because you don't have to go to the doctor and get a prescription. Mm-hmm. Is that that's the main reason? And many times it's, and many, it's cheaper, maybe? Cheaper, yep. Cheaper, easier. There's not that stigma associated. Um, and, and oftentimes they work just as well. Uh, and there are multiple studies. In fact, I have a list of, you know, half a dozen here that show when you take random samplings of these drugs over the counter and you look at what's actually in them, almost all of them have either Viagra or Levitra or Cialis or some derivative of that in them. Hmm. Um, and so that's why they work, because they have the same drug in there. And the, the problem is, though, they often have other things in there, too. And an herbal company clearly knows if I can give you a drug that's going to make you feel like a million bucks and you're going to get good erections and your um, energy is going to be higher, then you're going to buy that again. So it's in their best interest to put in uh, substances that help you lose weight, that give you energy, that fix your erections because you're going to come back and buy it again. In one pill, you can fix everything mm-hmm. at once. So uh, are there some uh, patients who have had adverse side effects from taking herbal Viagra? Yep. No, absolutely. All the time. In fact, the uh, probably the one that's received the most media attention that I've seen, at least in the past, you know, five to ten years or so, has been the Lamar Odom case, uh, which was the 2015 yeah. uh, story. And just to kind of sum up, he was the NBA championship guy, and he's a reality TV star. He was found in a coma in October 2015 at this brothel in Nevada. And essentially, he'd taken at least 10 herbal Viagra supplements during his three days that he was there. Uh, and, and, you know, certain ones, Reload and some of these other things. Um, and it was thought that was a main contributing factor to why he had had uh, or he'd been put in the coma for it. Oh, Odom, yeah, yeah. Lamar, is that his name? Lamar Odom. Yes. Ooh, yeah. No. So better stay away from that stuff. Yeah. That well, like to me. if you want an over-the-counter option, what should patients do if they are too embarrassed to talk to their doctor about it, but they are looking for an over-the-counter option? Do they have an option? Well, unfortunately, right now, not really is the right answer to that. There's not a good one. Uh, They are, so Pfizer in particular is looking at making Viagra potentially over the counter. Uh, And so at a certain point in the near future, that may be an option. Uh, But right now, really your best and safest uh, approach is to to look for a uh, prescription for it. All right, Dr. Landon Trost, urologist, talking about erectile dysfunction and the reason to avoid herbal Viagra. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about a cancer treatment known as HIPEC. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, there is a term that I want to introduce you to. And I want you to say it. <laughs> okay. It's called <laughs> hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy. And if you break that down and try to define it, hyperthermic means warm or, or hot. Intraperitoneal means inside the abdominal cavity, the abdominal cavity being encased in a in a sac called the peritoneum. And chemotherapy, you know what that is. I got that, For yes. sure you do. Well, that's also fortunately known by as the term or by the term HIPEC. 
and it's a unique procedure that's used to treat cancers that have spread inside the abdominal cavity. Now, following surgery to remove the cancer the surgeon can see, the abdominal cavity is then bathed with hot chemotherapy to kill any microscopic cancer cells that might still be around. That's amazing. HIPEC. Yeah, delivering chemotherapy through HIPEC allows for a high dosage of chemotherapy to be given with minimal exposure to the rest of the body, meaning the normal side effects of chemotherapy can be avoided. Joining us on the phone to discuss HIPEC is Dr. Sanjay Bagaria. Dr. Bagaria is a general surgeon at the Florida campus of Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bagaria. Thank you for having me. Dr. Bagaria, it's so nice to have you with us. And uh, what we're going to talk about, I think, is particularly encouraging for people who unfortunately have uh, metastasis or cancer that spread inside the abdominal cavity. So we've sort of described the technique. Is, is this new, something that you've only recently begun to use? You know, the, the procedure has been around for since the 1980s but really hasn't gained favor till recently as we are starting to see more benefits with it than we did in the past. And so now we're opening it up to more patients. And then we started the program here at Mayo Clinic about three to four years ago with the intent of treating more patients with this. Well, what were the problems and what are the benefits? So the, the procedure, as you described, is an operation where the surgeon removes all the visible cancer inside the abdomen and at the end of the operation, we wash the inside of the abdomen with heated chemotherapy. And the goal of this is to eradicate any microscopic disease left behind. The problem with this approach, unfortunately, is that it has a high complication profile associated with it. And so in the past, you know, we had lots of bad complications, including death associated with it. And so many people were shy to even offer it to patients. But... Over the past few years, as we've gotten better at it to understand how to treat patients who undergo this type of operation, we can minimize complications and therefore offer it to more patients. So why do you make the, the, the drugs hot? Uh, so we think that the heat or the hot are, uh, actually makes the chemotherapy work better hmm. uh, through a couple of ways. One is to make the chemotherapy penetrate the tissue deeper, and that's uh, facilitated by the heat. And number two is that we know that chemotherapy in general works better when it's heated versus normal thermic. Wow. Didn't wow. Know that. I didn't know that. And so obviously you're not uh, giving the patient chemotherapy through the vein. I mean, chemotherapy, uh, if you take those drugs orally, um, and so that has to make it easier for the patients. Is it? What are some of the side effects that they do experience? You know, so you're exactly right. So we're able to give a very high dose of chemotherapy that can kill cancer cells, but we only leave it inside the abdomen for about 90 minutes. And after 90 minutes, we remove it all, and that allows us to make sure it doesn't get all absorbed into the body. Now, unfortunately, over those 90 minutes, you do get some absorption. You can't avoid that. And so some patients may have some issues with their white blood cell count or their platelets going down, but for the vast majority of patients, they don't really see the effects of it. So tell us the kind of patients that you're talking about. Are, are these women with ovarian cancer, people with colon cancer, what else? So uh, so these patients are patients that have uh, metastasis or stage 4 cancer to their peritoneum or the lining of the inside of their abdomen. The, the life expectancy of these patients is only about six months. Mm. And so really there are no really good uh, out, uh, options for these patients outside of palliation. HIPEC is an opportunity to offer a potential cure, and I use that word very, very carefully, uh, but sure. you know, it's an option that we have for patients. And 
patients that we treat with this are typically patients that have cancers of the colon, ovary, or the appendix, um, sometimes other cancers as well, such as mesothelioma, which is a very rare type of cancer. So it's, are, that's a, lung, a type of lung cancer that has spread to the lining cavity of the abdomen. Actually, the other way around, it's actually, uh, uh, starts in the abdomen and can go to the lung. Really? From asbestos yeah. exposure? Uh, it can be associated with asbestos, but it cannot be as well. So it's, it's wow. once again very, very rare, but we do see patients that we treat with this. Okay. So the typical patient, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, gallbladder cancer maybe? Pancreas uh, really cancer? But no? definitely, definitely the appendix. Probably the appendix is actually interesting with the number one cancer we treat with this procedure. All right. So you mentioned that it, it is kind of regional treatment in that there's very little of it that gets into the, the systemic circulation, the entire body. But there were some significant side effects, one of which was, was death. And if, if someone would die from this, why, why would that be? Well, you know, it's, it's probably because of the sequela of the surgery itself. So when we remove the cancer, we do... Uh, multi-visceral resections, and what that basically means is that we may have to remove multiple organs. And when you do that, you start increasing the risk of a complication. And so the the dreaded complication from these operations were uh, injuries to the intestines. And if you have stool leaking on the inside of your abdomen, you know that can kill you. Well, this it sounds risky. How how risky is this? It is it is risky. And so imagine any operation that you do, you basically double the risk with the addition of the chemotherapy. And that's how I describe it to the patient. So you s- said, uh, I believe you told us that the average patient that you see with disease in the peritoneal uh, cavity um, has an, a survival, average survival of about six months. If you use this treatment, how effective is it and, and how, by how much are you able to prolong survival? So that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it really depends on a few variables. Well, one is like what cancer are we treating um, and how much do they have inside them? And is that cancer a favorable or unfavorable biology? But for example, uh, cancers of the appendix, which is the most common one we see, if, you, if really? you just did surgery alone for it, the chances of living 10 years is about 30%. Mm. If you do this high-pec procedure, that number goes to about 70% at 10 years. Wow. Well, pretty good. That is good. Now, that's for the appendix. That, that's almost a slam-dunk indication. For the other cancers, it's a bit more controversial, but it gives you the sense that you can achieve good results with this with this type of procedure. Is this is this uh, treatment unique to Mayo Clinic? Uh, there are centers that offer HIPEC across the world, um, but there are very few of them. And the reason why is because it requires a lot of specialization and a lot of support. You know, Mayo Clinic, because of our model of care, we're able to do it, um, I think, fairly well. So we have a program in Arizona that's been doing it. We have one here in Florida, and they're starting one in Rochester this year. Pretty interesting. Uh, one more question. Do you use different drugs depending on the type of cancer? Are you that sophisticated? Um, yes, we are, surprisingly. <laughs> we <laughs> we, uh, we use, uh, depending on the cancer, we do try different drugs um, that are standards that we do know about. And we're actually now in the process of opening a phase one trial to introduce immunotherapy into the uh, paradigm for high-tech surgery. 
Wow. wow. So immunotherapy into the abdomen instead of the typical... We are we are in the process point. of working on that. That's right. Wow. wow. Can I take a crack at this, Dr. Shives? We've been talking about... <laughs> <Just> hy- hy- <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about hypothermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy with Mayo Clinic surgeon Dr. Sanjay Bagaria from the Florida campus of Mayo Clinic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bagaria. Thank you. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.